There's an obscure story about one of Freud's personal conversations that puts an interesting twist on the state of psychology in the West. The discussion was with Ludwig Binswanger, a Swiss psychiatrist and the founder of the existential movement in psychoanalysis. Binswanger felt that there was something missing in Freud's approach to therapy. Too many patients simply did not get better. He raised the problem of the paralysis of analysis with Freud. Might there not be a deficiency of spirit, asked Binswanger delicately, such that certain people were unable to raise themselves to a level of, as he put it, spiritual communication with their analysts? Could this lack of spiritual communication be the thing that stopped people from healing? To Binswanger's surprise, the old man readily acknowledged his point. Why, yes, Freud said, spirit is everything. Binswanger thought that Freud must have misunderstood his use of the word spirit, perhaps thinking he meant something on the order of intelligence. But Freud continued on. Mankind has always known that it possesses spirit, he said firmly. I had to show that there are also instincts. When Freud sought to make room for instincts against the background of spirit, he did not anticipate a time when we would forget about spirit altogether. He could not foresee an era when instincts would reign supreme. By the time I was growing up in 20th century America, spirit already seemed out of reach. Freud's psychology was the accepted language of the mind, challenged only by B.F. Skinner's behaviorism. Those of us who sensed a deficiency of spirit were aware only of a feeling of absence, a yearning for something intangible, a sense of emptiness that could not be explained. We did not have words or concepts for what we were missing. Even today, one of the most common questions that I'm asked is the meaning of the word spiritual. Many people have lost touch with it altogether. The most important gift that my encounters with Buddhism have given me is access to this spirit that Freud seemed to have taken for granted. Its recovery was of crucial importance to me. Freud was wrong on one particular point in his conversation with Binswanger. Mankind does not always know that it has spirit. Sometimes we forget. Examples of this forgetting abound, even among those searching for a spiritual life. The split between instincts and spirit comes up in my practice all of the time. A woman named Sally, for instance, called not so long ago seeking advice from me. She had been plagued with chronic feelings of anxiety and depression for much of her adult life, and despite a healthy investment in psychotherapy, she still felt that there was something the matter with her. Sally had been taking a small dose of an antidepressant, Zoloft, and she was finding that she felt calmer, less irritable, and, dare she say, happier. She was planning on going to a two-week meditation retreat later that month and was wondering whether to stay on her medicine while she was there. Something about taking it while on retreat made her uncomfortable, and that was the reason for her call. Perhaps I should go more deeply into my problems while I'm away, Sally questioned. She worried that the antidepressant would impede that process by making her problems less accessible to her. She wondered what I thought. Sally's question was interesting, not only because of the drug issue, but because of her assumptions about what would make her feel better. 
When people believe that they are their problems, there's often a desire to pick away at the self, as if by doing so they could expose how bad they really are. People think that if they could just admit the awful truth about themselves, they would start to feel better, almost as if they have to go to confession to be absolved of their sins. Going more deeply into one's problems is the standard approach of most therapies, and it can lead, at best, to a kind of sober honesty and humility that gives people a quiet strength of character. But to go more deeply into our problems is sometimes to go only into what we already know. It can lead, at worst, to a kind of jaded pessimism about the self, a resigned negativity that verges on self-hatred. I was sure that Sally did not have to go looking for problems on her retreat. Retreats are difficult enough, even for people who are not depressed. Her unresolved issues would come rushing in to fill every space, whether she took her antidepressant or not. But she might have more success in not being sucked in by them with the medicine inside of her. I told her that at this point I felt she needed to come out of her problems, not go into them more deeply, and that the antidepressant should not get in her way in that regard. To be overwhelmed while on retreat would not be useful. As a therapist influenced by the wisdom of the East, I am confident that there is another direction to move in such situations, away from the problems and into the unknown. Sometimes this fills us with fear, but if we stay with our anxiety, we have a special opportunity to know ourselves more authentically. Buddhism is very clear about how important it is to move in such a direction, and as such it is relentlessly optimistic. Rather than going more deeply into our problems, Buddhism teaches us how to disentangle our minds from them. There's more to the mind than just neurosis, the Buddha taught. At the heart of all of us is the potential for kindness, generosity, and wisdom. This is an approach that Western therapy has little experience with, but it is the foundation of Eastern wisdom. The contents of the mental stream are not as important as the consciousness that knows them. Throughout my work as a therapist, I have found it necessary to bring what I have learned from Buddhism back into the psychological realm. People who are suffering want to change, but they do not know how. They feel, like Sally, that they have to go into their problems or get rid of them entirely. They want to analyze or be analyzed, and they want to love or be loved. But they do not know that to bring about true healing, they have to learn how to see themselves as they truly are. Many times I have been asked how my involvement with Buddhism has affected the way I do therapy. People wonder, how does your interest in meditation make you different from a conventional therapist? Do you teach your clients to meditate? For a long time, I simply dodged the question, what is the difference between a Buddhist and a non-Buddhist? By way of an answer, I would reply by repeating a joke that one of my patients relayed to me. A non-Buddhist thinks there's a difference. Buddhism taught me to let go of concepts and opinions and to break down constricting boundaries, not to create a new ideology. Meditation taught me how to be at one with whatever I was doing. It allowed me to do therapy with a focus on doing therapy. Just as it taught me to wash the dishes when I was washing the dishes, to walk when I walked, 
and to play with my children when I played with my children. Meditation was about learning to be more fully in the moment, in the now, engaged in the process of being alive. It was not about creating a new form that is better than the old form. Meditation taught me to give myself over to my role as a therapist, to be as present as possible. When doing therapy, I was just doing therapy. I did not assume that I did therapy any differently from a non-Buddhist therapist. I certainly did not ordinarily teach my clients to meditate, although if they asked me, I would tell them who I thought a good teacher might be. Yet, as I considered the question, I realized that my answer was disingenuous. The positive outlook of Buddhism has guided the way I work as a therapist. It molded my approach from the beginning and affects everything from my goals to my method to my basic orientation. Buddhism was with me as I made my way in psychotherapy, influencing all of my choices as I developed my own style of working. I was in the rather unique position of learning about Buddhism before I knew very much about anything else. This was different from the usual mode in our culture in which Buddhism is encountered as other, and attempts are made to understand it through the filters of our own systems of knowledge. Still a college student, I was fairly naive when I first came upon the Buddha's psychology. It did not seem alien to me. In fact, it made much more immediate sense than the first writings on psychoanalysis or behaviorism that I had already studied in my first years at Harvard. While I was interested in becoming a therapist by this time, I did not know much about what it actually entailed. Only after immersing myself in Buddhism did I decide to enter medical school to pursue training as a psychiatrist. My involvement with Buddhism predated the bulk of my education as a psychotherapist. The core teaching of Buddhism is a psychological one. In his Four Noble Truths, the Buddha analyzed the human condition and taught the vehicle for change. Experience is tinged with a sense of pervasive unsatisfactoriness, he declared. And the cause of this pain is our own clinging or grasping after certain...